The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hi. Later in the show, we hand over to our colleagues in Asia to explain why AB InBev's Asia Brewer and logistics warehouse provider ESR are restarting their plans to go public in Hong Kong, even though anti-government protests are still in full swing. We start, though, with the attacks on the two Saudi oil plants over the weekend. I've got George Hay from London and John Furley from our US office here to talk through the ramifications of these attacks. Welcome to both of you. Hi. Hi, Anthony. Right. So look, let's let's start with you, George. So these two attacks took out basically 5% of, of uh, the world's oil supplies after the Saudis had to shut down half of what they put out. Um, the talk initially was that this was going to take weeks, not days to repair. That may now have changed. But just talk us through what is what are the, the, the big issues to take away from this, both from a political and a financial perspective for us? Right. Um, I mean, First of all, as you say, it's 5% of the overall global um, oil supply, have 100 million barrels a day, and it's around 5% of that. Um, the critical issue here, um, as, you, as you mentioned, is um, how quickly can Aramco, Saudi's national oil company, get that supply back? Um, now, if they can get it back in a matter of weeks, i.e. Um, less than a month, uh, it should be pretty much okay for the um, overall oil market because um, in the meantime, um, all the big oil consumers around the world have um, reserves of oil that they can dip into while um, there's this temporary hiatus in the Saudi oil supply. But once you get appreciably into months, um, then there's a big, big problem because the the oil stocks don't last that long, um, bluntly. Um, so that's a big problem for uh, all sorts of reasons. It's a big problem for the oil market because the um, uh, the price will clearly just go up, um, reflecting that. Uh, it's a big problem for Saudi because they're incredibly uh, dependent on oil reserves. Um, and it's also a big problem for Aramco, the, um, uh, the, the oil company, because um, they, they are literally in the midst of um, launching an IPO of 5% of their company. So it's a problem for all those all, all those um, interest groups. Um, George, I want to start with the last point that you made about Aramco. So if I'm thinking about this, how do these strikes kind of play into that process? I mean, on the one hand, I could see possibly it might be helpful in the sense that if oil prices rise, that could be good and it could increase the value of uh the company. Yeah. But on the other hand, like the, the risk factors are really just sort of laid bare. Where yeah, it's yeah. Like I mean, absolutely. very vulnerable. And, you know, this could be a problem. Absolutely. No, I mean, you get to Aramco gets to it gets its revenues, like any other company from the price and the volume. So obviously, if the price goes up quite sharply, then that's a happy days. But it's um decidedly sad days for them if they're um, is if the motive force for that uh, price going up is that their own volumes are going down. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of long-running long kind of bone of contention for the Saudi um, oil powers that be because um, they since 2016, Saudi and a load of the other oil producers have been cutting supply intentionally to, to try and kind of G up the price. Um, and they've mm. been doing that across the board. 
Um, mm. And obviously that that kind of isn't isn't unlikely because it means your re- your uh, your overall volumes are lower. But uh, um, now there's a difference between doing that in a kind of controlled and coordinated way and um, having half of your supply just knocked out by a, yeah. a drone. And, and obviously, so you know, net net, it's a neg- it's a clear negative for Ramco. The other point that you make, which is which is very on point, is um, is this issue about um, the the risk factors, which um, you'd think that's a kind of kind of quite airy, uh, fairy kind of way of thinking of thinking about it, but actually it's a very very concrete thing for uh, Aram, the Aramco's valuation uh, because uh, the way that you the, the way that you do a valuation of Aramco if you're doing it properly, and the way that we do it in our breaking views calculator is to kind of estimate all the cash flows going off into the distance and then discount them back um, using a particular discount rate. Now, the discount rate we used in our calculator, being quite generous to Aramco, was 8%. Um, now, like as an app, whatever happens, it doesn't matter if they re- kind of get the, the supply back now or um, certain, but certainly if they did it um, you know, in a couple of months, that, that 8% just has to be probably at least 10% and um, probably a bit higher. And that because it's such a kind of key input into the model, um, the overall uh, Aramco valuation, that can, that can knock kind of hundreds of billions off uh, what it's worth. And it already isn't worth the $2 trillion that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman wants it to be. So what, George, what does this do for the oil market over the longer term? Because I was looking at this thinking, you know, previously Saudi Arabia has been this very stable supplier of oil into yeah. the market. And we all know that oil is over the long term going to be less um, fashionable and people are making a shift towards renewables. But yeah. does this, I mean, in theory, this should speed that up, right? In the sense that you, you kind of look at Saudi and you say, well, maybe the long term, you know, the, the stop date just kind of got a bit closer. Maybe we, we can rely a bit less easily on what Saudi's pumping. So maybe we should start making those marginal shifts in a slightly faster way towards yeah. non-oil-based energy. Yeah, I mean, it will have to have some kind of effect um, like that. I mean, you know, it, we kind of go back to the 1970s where um, after the oil crisis in 1973, that um, prompted a kind of uh, big kind of explosion in uh, interest in renewables under the Carter administration and uh, and um and and after that so this this could have a kind of i mean it'd be a surprise yeah as you say that's the direction of travel it'd be surprising if it didn't add an extra little shove to um the effort to kind of you know properly explore wind power solar power um and all the rest of it uh and i i mean the the, the oil the oil bulls would would kind of respond and say, well, look at the International Energy Agency projections for how much oil we're going to need over the next 20 years. It's still an absolutely massive amount. But if we, the, the critical issue is always at what point do politicians bother about um, kind of complying with the Paris Agreement um, limits on CO2. And uh, as soon as they do, then um, we have a lot less oil than we um, we expect to, we, we might have expected to have um anyway so this kind of thing will almost certainly act as a as a helpful shove i would have thought yeah i mean i, I would look at this i think you know the, 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 the big thing about this i suppose from a risk perspective is overall is is that it's drones is that, is that you have not had to spend or the attackers have not had to spend a great deal of money and planning like you maybe would have had to have done in previous 
major wars to sure. take out these facilities. They use what nineteen, twenty drones and a, and, a, and a few cruise missiles. I mean, it's not it's not as if it's it's a particularly um, expensive high tech campaign, which means there's a lot bigger chance of this happening again. Which means well, that, that, that your cost yeah, of that, production that, may go up. Which means yes. the whole thing flows through, and that the cost of renewable energy becomes all all the more um, obvious to take. But I mean, it has other implications as well, right? I mean, if you think. Um, at the moment, we've got in the U.S. a, uh, a battle between California and the Trump administration over um, fuel emissions on cars. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, most of the cars in this country now being sold, new cars, are SUVs, which guzzle more gasoline. There's more SUVs being driven in Europe as well. If the price of oil goes up, the desire to find alternatives or to drive less or to do whatever else to find your way to spend less on gasoline is going to go up as well, as we saw yeah, we saw that back in the in previous all all price shocks. Yeah, absolutely. 20, I mean, well, one thing that you mentioned the the the, the politics of this um, earlier, and it's pretty pretty important because even if Aramco does um, just return to full production um, in you know the next hour or so, um, you know, even if they do do that, the the, the cat's out of the bag in in a way in in that like mm. uh, effectively. As you say, if if it's if it's Iran or anyone else um, just lobbing a few drones in and causing this much damage, then um, there's a pretty good chance that a it might happen again, or at least investors will fear it or it will happen again. So, John, with that in mind, let's turn to uh, the U.S. market and what is the impact that this has on shale producers in Texas and elsewhere? Um, is this good news for them? Is it bad news for them? Like, how? What's the opportunity? What's the upside for the United States. Well, obviously, when the oil price jumped, um, as it did on Monday, that is great news for anyone who's producing oil and has not been hit by drones. So for shale producers in places like the Permian in your, in your homeland of Texas, um, this is kind of a good thing because they, they, the, the shale producers have been struggling um, since about, you know, 2014 with oil prices that have been um, low, higher than their often than their um, production. And costs. is that because of the, there's a glut in the market and that there's yeah, just a lot? There's a gl- glut in the market, but there's also been a lack of discipline. So they okay. just kept producing. The thing about shale and the reason why people often talk about how shale might ride to the rescue when Saudi oil gets knocked out is that shale is relatively easy to switch on and off. Okay. Um, but it's this is an exaggeration. It actually still takes you know weeks, if not months, to get a well up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But in, in the short term, shale producers have only just, for the first time ever, according to a study that I saw by Reistad Energy, have become cash flow positive. In other words, they've got something left after they've spent on their, basically, on their investments and salaries and all that kind of thing. Um, so the, the bump in the oil price, if it had been sustainable, would be quite good for them because it's a bit more money in their pockets. The question is whether they use that higher oil price to start drilling again. Uh, and if they do, then you know the extra benefits of this will just like trickle away, basically. Well, can they pl- can the shale producers, excuse my pun here, plug the hole that Saudi like the production in Saudi right? They're they're down fifty percent. Can that does that flood into the market? Well, no. Okay. Um, the the whole of the U.S. shale um, sector produces um, ru- in very rough terms about the same amount as was knocked out. Uh, in salary. Okay. So, All right. Well, so that's helpful like, to put that in perspective. Yeah. So it's not like they could ride to the rescue. No, and they're, gr- yeah. they're growing their production over time. Okay. And, 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 you know, we're going to add about 5 million barrels a day to U.S. production, overall U.S. oil production between 2018 and about 2024. Which, how much is that as a, as a percentage of what they're pushing out already? So the shale producers are pushing out around 
far, like say five million barrels a day. Um, so that's about a third of the U.S. total, right. and most of the growth over the next few years will come from shale. Right. But but certainly, and also, oil is not all the same. You know, the, you have um, very light oils, heavy oils. The oil that comes from Saudi tends to be he- heavy crude oil, mm-hmm. which has its own refining needs. I think George, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the oil that was knocked out the other day was actually lighter oil, but still not quite the same as what comes out of the Permian. Slightly strange terminology, but the, like even if it's Arab light oil, uh, it's still heavier than the stuff that comes out of the uh, the Permian, um, which is kind of higher quality stuff. Um, but uh, it's yeah, the, the 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 kind of different difference in the grades of oil is kind of quite important in this conversation as well, because it's not you know um, there's as a result of um, uh, what's happening in the Middle East? There's a there, there's a particular shortage in the kind of heavier grades, which a lot of the Asian refiners and quite a few of the U.S. refiners as well. The U.S. is still importing uh, quite a lot of um, stuff from uh, other countries, so all of them are set are set up to use this stuff. So it's not a it's not a simple thing of unplugging one set of supply and plugging in another. It's a bit more um, difficult than that. Yeah. So, the, so the sh- basically, you don't switch off one tap in Saudi and switch on another one in Texas, mm. and everything kind of comes good again. Um, but the other, the other big shift that we've seen in the last few years, because lots of shale producers got into trouble, there are, there are on one hand still big expansion plans among a lot of the big oil majors that are going into the into the shale rich regions, which are like the Bakken and the Permian. Um, companies like Exxon Mobil um, uh, expanding quite rapidly. Um, but at the same time, the the industry has become a lot more focused on conserving cash. So when we saw the the huge takeover of Anadarko Petroleum earlier this year by Occidental Petroleum, these are both two shale drillers, investors were mostly concerned about whether the dividend was going to be payable because what they want is oil producers to generate cash and pay it out to them. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of hope that even if the oil price goes higher, some shale drillers will focus on delivering cash to shareholders, which is what shareholders want, rather than just frittering it on more production. It's easy to say, but the fact is that you know, whenever I've talked to executives in the resources industries, be it mining of you know, iron ore or drilling oil, they're engineers mostly, and they just like to drill stuff. So give them some more money, and they'll drill more stuff. Yeah. Right, so what we're looking at here then is, is basically a market where we're going to have, assuming the Saudis don't get this back up and running quickly, we're going to have less oil, and there's no easy way to replace it, which means we've all got to conserve a little bit more, which, frankly, long-term is, is where we're heading anyway. So nothing, nothing wrong there, apart from the fact, of course, we had to have a tax to get us there. All right, guys, uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's been very enlightening, I'm sure. This is going to be a topic we're going to be digging back into in the future. Thanks, John. Uh, Thanks, George. Thanks. Thanks. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here with our columnist, Alec McFarlane, in Hong Kong, and we are talking about the restart of two IPOs that had been postponed in the midst of the massive protests we had here. That's specifically AB InBev, which had originally planned a $9.8 billion listing, I believe, and also a logistics warehouse provider, ESR. Um, they both have, have restarted this week. Alec, this seems odd. The, the protests are still going underway. Um, you know, they were throwing Molotov cocktails at police stations over the weekend. Um, and yet AB InBev is back, and so is ESR. What, what happened? Yeah, so there, there seems to be uh, a, a feeling that uh, there, there could be some good news in the market between now and the end of the year. I mean, there, there's expectations of an of a interest rate cut from the feds and also there's an expectation that there, there could be a softening in the in the trade tensions as well 
so yeah, both of these companies cancelled their IPOs over the summer. Uh, pricing played a part. Also, these these protests in Hong Kong, which is turning increasingly well, tell me about violent. The pricing. I mean, so these came in fairly aggressively. Yes. That's right, yeah. So a, bit, a big reason why ESR was shelled was because some of the investors thought the valuation was pretty rich. And also AB InBev, uh, the, the Budweiser APAC subsidiary, kind of uh, priced its IPO sort of more sort of in line with like emerging market peers, whereas the, the business before was also quite, you know, developed market as well. Well, so that's you're talking about the Australian business specifically, right? Uh, the Australian business and and the, the Japan business as well, and yeah, both packaging. Yeah. But but so now the second time around, um, that Australia is is out, right? They've 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 stripped it down, so it's just more of an emerging market play. But it's much smaller. Um, do you think they'll be able to keep their 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 pricing ratios in place, or are they going to have to discount? Yeah, so I mean, the the good thing about selling the Australian business to Sahi is that now this is more of a kind of exciting emerging market story, and and based on that, they should have you know technically sort of uh, or theoretically attract a exciting emerging markets valuation. So more in line with China Resources or Taibev or United Breweries. Well, we'll see if that works out. I mean, I guess that the one question on everybody's mind is a. Uh well, they're just testing the water now, right? Like they're, they're, they, it's, they still have the option to back off again. I mean, we've just seen some really negative Chinese economic data. Um, the trade war tensions have eased slightly, but we've seen, you know, how this script runs. Right? <laughs> um, you know, in the meantime, you know, the Hong Kong market is is still very much uh, an unstable place. But I think you've written that, that that it might be that one of the reasons they push back again is or have restarted is because they think next year might be even worse. Um, can you lay that out for us a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that that is a good point. I mean, the, the big thing about refiling is it just kind of legally allows them to talk to investors again. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to, you know, that, that, that they will sort of go ahead with with these. I mean, like Budweiser is planning to launch its uh, its IPO this, this week. Um, so that's, but I mean, ESR has, has just refiled, so we're not entirely sure where that's going to go. And of course, yeah, next year, this is the thing. So, I mean, the, the, the protests, there's, there's no end in sight to these protests. Uh, hostilities between the US and China will probably continue until at least the US general elections in, in November next year. So it does kind of feel that, you know, that it, it's, it's kind of like an opportunity cost scenario. You know, do you, uh, do you kind of launch now with this kind of tiny bit of positivity, or do you wait until next year when you know everything could <laughs> turn turn even even more sour? Yeah, I mean it's a very tiny bit of positivity, as you note, and I mean, but it, it is also interesting that the Hong Kong Exchange itself just tried to pair up with the London Stock Exchange, um, which is also coming at this very weak time. Apparently, like this deal kind of came out of. Well, at least as, as far as a lot of observers were concerned, came out of nowhere. Um, I mean, but does, does this seem like there's there's more optimism on the side of the Hong Kong exchange itself that that IPOs are coming back? Or is it a sign of desperation that, you know, we have to reach out because things are going to be drying up here? Uh, it's, it's it's tough to link the two. I mean, I'd, I'd love to sort of think that, uh, you know, sort of Charles Lee knocked on the, the doors of uh, Budweiser APAC and ESR and said, you know, come on, guys, why don't you sort of relaunch to make this, <laughs> make, well, make, yeah, make the whole stock exchange theory, look like, a little hey, bit better? Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't think that's the case. But I, I really do think that, uh, I, I mean, I'd, I would actually be surprised if, if any of these kind of, you know, big IPOs really succeeded the way they, they want them to with, with everything that's happening. Yeah, and he, you know, people were had him on the short list for Aramco for a bit. I know we wrote something to that effect, um, and that seems off. And, and it seems like there's this 
you know, real crisis of, of confidence in the Hong Kong exchange's future, I guess. Well, exactly. I mean, especially since, you know, Alibaba, which is kind of the, the you know, the one that got away is now sort of delaying its Right. They were supposed to come back in, to Hong Kong and have a secondary. Exactly. And secondary in Hong Kong because of these because of these protests specifically. And so presumably if like AB InBev and ESR having refiled decide to cancel again, that's super embarrassing bad news for for the hong kong exchange it doesn't look great no (laughs) well thanks for talking to me alec that's our show for this week thanks to john foley george hay pete sweeney and alec mcfarlane for coming on the show and we extend our gratitude as always to our producers freddie joiner and ross shoulder thanks to you our listeners for tuning in Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And please do share your opinions about both of our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.